to Mox Madness. Oh, yeah. We are back. We're doing it again. Doing it again. Took a week off of recording. We're as close to live as we've been in months. Living on the razor's edge of podcasting. Uh, you know, that 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 time you like to be where where things could happen and you could actually talk about them and it's not three weeks in the future. We're here. Things things are nipping at our heels. They're Reality nipping at our heels. Won't stop. And uh the thing so first, because I, I I think we do a decent job of acknowledging it every year, but uh David, yesterday, uh May fifth, what uh missing and murdered Indigenous Women's Day? Yes, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit Day, uh, or mis- just Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Day. Um, not sure which is the best way to point that out, because obviously women, we already just uh, you know imply includes trans women and, and non-binary, uh, so therefore should also include girls and two-spirit, but also... When you mention girls, it, it you know kind of points out that this is something that also happens to children. It's not just adult women. And when you point out two-spirit, that's a unique gender uh, identity to very specific indigenous ethnicities uh, on this continent. Um, it's, it's distinct from trans or non-binary. Um, and so... I'm not sure which is the best way to put it, but at least missing a murder Indigenous Women's Day uh, is May fifth. So that was that was yesterday, um, and we just recently pointed out too, of course, that that means that we have to redouble our, our efforts to oppose uh, oil pipelines uh, with Line Three coming through. Uh, I was pointed out recently how closely the path of missing and murdered Indigenous women ties to oil pipelines and especially to the path that that one is going along the the oil rich path that is going along um which of course cuts right through indigenous territory so very very vital that we focus on that um that is current event numero uno um also along with that uh something that always happens on that same day and it's Along with, of course, you know, the Haymarket affair that, that May Day was meant to honor and some other socialist things that happened in early May that, that kind of dubbed May Day International Labor Day. Um, May 5th is, of course, the birthday of Karl Marx. So happy I birthday, thought Carl. you were going to say Cinco de Mayo. Darn it. All right. Well, I'll get it next year. <laughs> happy birthday, Carl. Happy birthday, Carl. Um so that's that's a little more positive. Um, obviously, we don't want to take any attention away from missing and murdered Indigenous women. That is an under under acknowledged um, campaign that we need to put heavy focus on, uh, including you know Indigenous women, of course, in, in North America. It, well, Mexico is still North America, uh, but up up here, you know, USA, Canada regions, but also um, in other parts of of the Americas, including, you know, the the femicides that have been uh, a huge part since the drug cartels moved in after signing NAFTA. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't also celebrate Karl Marx's birthday. So, you can can equally put focus on two things at one time. We have that capacity. We shall do so. That's right. Um, That's right. So, we we, we do. We are capable of that. Speaking of South America, uh, Colombia popping off a little bit yeah um there has been a massive wave of protest and pushback of course because you know the covid um handling by that government 
has not been good as it's not good by any u.s ally and then of course they just pushed up higher taxes at the same time um and the u.s backed fascist duque has sicked the military on the protesters they've fired at them with live rounds from helicopters Uh, of course they always go after the indigenous people this is one thing so people don't don't remember you know colombia was part of the 50 years war this this 50 year long constant civil war between the basically right-wing cia-backed explicitly cia-backed drug cartels i mean never forget too this this ties into the the war on drugs and policing and and the prison industrial complex uh you know it's a little shaky with the whole rise in violence or whatever in the 70s and 80s come from but it's pretty tightly tied to a spike in, in drug use all the drugs of course and the biggest drug trafficker in the world is the cia and the biggest resource is of course central and south america most especially uh the u.s outposts in colombia where uh the colombian you know drug cartels are the big right wing in power and next to israel america's biggest imperialist outpost as far as you know weapons exported um and u.s military might behind it is of course colombia this is another reason why you know venezuela is such a threat it's not just because venezuela sits on the biggest oil result reserves in the world it's not just because u.s uh and their you know monroe doctrine really sees central and south america as their backyard and dare not let anyone ever see another economic model work in america's backyard uh, but also Venezuela is right next to Colombia. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. And uh, so one of the many reasons the U.S. is not a big fan of the Bolivarian Revolution and, um, you know, strongly combats that is because Venezuela right there, you know, sh- can show people a better way of life in South America and show them, you know, what can happen if they oppose the Colombian government. Also, of course, with um Bolivia, you know, just winning back people's power after Evo Morales was ousted in 2019 uh, through a U.S.-backed coup. Um, there's been a lot of use of the Wapala flag, uh, a flag very widely used by different indigenous groups in South America, because, of course, you know, they have ties to the other indigenous groups, and they have ties to Bolivian groups, and, and they believe the same thing, and they see the support of people around them, and they see hope in the people around them. Um and then also something else that kind of lends to that, that's not just, hey, there's been mass uprisings. Hey, that's good news of the mass uprising. Hey, oh no, you know, Duque is very powerful and has killed 18 people and it's just coming down on them militarily. Um, and, and obviously we support first and foremost people's uprisings against U.S. imperialism. Uh, but we have been talking about recently as well um, in Peru. So... Yeah. While we were obviously disappointed with the election results in Ecuador, and when I say disappointed, that's a, a deep, world-affecting thing that we were very troubled by. But you know, I mean, it's—I I don't know what better wording to use. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, Pedro Castillo came out of nowhere. We talked about uh, the very far left, the openly communist um, candidate, which was completely unexpected. Well, the other sort of left candidate besides Pedro Castillo uh, was Veronica Mendoza and we talked about how you know Pedro Castillo is very socially conservative but that's that's not different than the other parties down there you know that's mm-hmm. just kind of the reality there because that's what imperialism and colonialism can do to a culture right um, so you know it's not like he was going to be worse on LGBT issues than one of the right wing uh, people elected well 
more of a center left, the only left person that you thought had any chance, but she was looking at like fifth or sixth, and she's the only one that was good at LGBT views, and she kind of had a, you know, wanted to nationalize, didn't like the OAS, but you weren't sure how committed she was because she was, you know, repeating whatever U.S. lines about Venezuela and stuff, was Veronica Mendoza. And so you were like, okay, is this, you know, a leftist candidate? Is this someone who's, you know, CIA-backed and and faux-left, whatever it is? Well, good news about her character and what she really means. Good news about the power behind Pedro Castillo's support. And good news about you know, hope that, that, you know, Pedro Castillo's campaign and party and, and support base uh, can move better to, on LGBT plus issues is Veronica Mendoza signed a joint declaration of support with Pedro Castillo. Mm. So that's a really, really big. Uh, and that lends a lot of oomph to the thought that Pedro Castillo might actually win the elections in Peru, which next to Colombia is the U.S.'s second biggest outpost of power in South America. So that would really rock the imperialist machine. Uh, so with that in Colombia going up, that, you know, again, things were very sad at, on how they happened in, in Ecuador, but everything else is moving very strongly in the direction that people are trying to push off the throes of imperialism. Um, and so, of course, you know, if Peru moves that way, if uh, left power was able to, to win back anything in Brazil and hopefully be a little more left, you know, not, not antagonistic at the U.S. request at like Haiti, but a little more of what was good about Lula and Dilma in Brazil. Um, and, and there's some signs there that people are pushing back down there, of course, because the COVID pandemic is hitting them hard. Um, and then, of course, you know, if Colombia comes down, that, that would all be good news. That would be a huge left wave in South America. And the most concrete one is uh, the election going on in Peru now. And so Veronica Mendoza um, signing that agreement to support Pedro Castillo is huge. Good. All right. Well, that gives me we, – we've got some optimism this week, ladies and gentlemen. It's not all too yeah. gloom here at Mark's <laughs> Madness this week. Um That being said, any other current events, anything else floating out there that you would like to address? Oh, Yes, so Biden has finally said that he would support the TRIPS waiver. Yes, I saw that. Adam Johnson was very happy, sort of. Yeah, I was, I, I, I'm, I'm with Adam there. If it really is that, and it, I guess there's a small chance it could be that, that would, like, supporting the TRIPS waiver, the, the main one out there that activists are pushing, uh, that would be an un, unapologetic win for humanity. Just huge. Yeah. Now Angela uh, Merkel's already come out said, and said she doesn't support it. So don't, let's not get carried away, humanity. We still we still might be awful. Sure, sure. But, I mean, the, the, the material effect. I mean, let's face it. You know, either direction, right? If Merkel came out supporting the TRIPS waiver, she wouldn't be able to push the U.S. out. And if the U.S. genuinely supported the TRIPS waiver for whatever reason, Germany would not be able to stop the TRIPS waiver from happening. I mean, let's face it. Yeah. it, it that would be a huge, huge boon for humanity. Heck yeah. Uh, that said, on the unfortunate side, is that is yet to be seen because I feel the same cynicism as Adam does. Where like you don't want to be overly cynical in the name of cynicism, but I have about as much confidence that that he's going to support the trips waiver and it's not going to be a load of bullshit as much as I have the confidence that the U.S. is truly pulling out of Afghanistan. Like, and oh, that's yeah. to say that uh, we've we've supposedly were pulling out in what 2014. So, yeah. Um, Now, that's not stopping China and Russia from not only 
and Cuba from not only widely producing and exporting vaccines and working with local governments to, since they can't do the TRIPS waiver and have the local governments have their own companies manufacture the vaccines, they're actually making, um, la- I don't know what the term is, labs, I guess, to produce the vaccine down there or manufacturing sites to, to produce the vaccine in those countries. Yeah. Uh, which, again, speaks to, to what China stands for in the global south, right? It's one of those things where, you know, you, you talk to, uh, you see interviews with, like, African leaders and stuff, right? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, China does loans, but they're a tiny fraction. And when China comes in and does a loan, all of a sudden, you know, when other countries come in, there's like, there's a road from the port to the mine, and that's it. When China comes in and, and does the load, there's roads everywhere for everyone to do better and shop and, and, and build their economy and build their infrastructure and, and things like that, right? And this is the same kind of commitment to, to the global south. You know, China is, they believe in what they call win-win diplomacy. And so they're certainly getting something out of it, but they're not doing it at, at the detriment of the other side yeah. because they're in control and they can. They're doing it hopefully so that everybody wins and they bring about peace and they bring about these, you know, mutual, mutually beneficial relationships in the world. Sort of the whole backbone of what diplomacy was supposed to be sort of a thing. Exactly. Hypothetically. But you know, no big deal. Um, Just like socialism gives us kind of the backbone of what democracy was actually supposed to be in spite of all the (laughs) anti-communist lies, like anti-democracy, we're spreading democracy. Same thing with diplomacy, you know. It's all there, circle, be unbroken, and we're back. Um, All right. (laughs) That being said, that's been enough of the current events. We're a books podcast. We read books. Yeah. Uh, And the book that we're reading this week, next week, for every week uh, is Black Reconstruction in America by W.E.B. Du Bois. And we're starting on page 472, and we're starting halfway down the page with two factions soon. Soon? Is that so- why, is there, why is there a little yeah, R thing soon. on the back of it? There's a little... There's a little f- I, it's like an apostrophe, or maybe it's just a bad mark from printing. Uh, I think it's a bad mark from printing, but it's throwing me off. Two factions soon developed among the Republicans. Warmoth tried to appease the planters and avoid too great dependence on the Negro. But the Tribune, leading of the pure radical, said in 1868, the Republican Party in Louisiana is headed by men who, for the most part, are devoid of honesty and decency. And we think it right that the country should know it. The active portion of the party in Louisiana is composed largely of white adventurers who strive to be elected to office by black votes. Some of these intend, if elected, to give a share of office to colored men. We admit that, but they will choose only docile tools, not citizens who have manhood. Okay. When the Republic, so, yeah, there's <laughs> okay. There's a little bit of uh, emasculation there, uh, but basically, that's that's talking about something that that's kind of you know, presuming this is this is an honest critique, and Du Bois chose to quote it for a reason. Uh, something that makes us think of like you know, uh, modern day Democrats, right? You know, it's it's just a bunch of wealthy white opportunists who want power, who claim that they stand by uh, the needs of black people, and, and the politics at least sound. Uh, like they're good for black people and they'll even put some representation in there, but they're going to make sure they're yes men. Yeah. You know, they're, they're going to make sure that they do their policies, the white man policies. When the Republicans came to select the candidate for governor, the pure radicals proposed that that sounds like a nineties alt rock band, the pure radicals. <laughs> yeah. The fact that they keep capitalizing it keeps throwing me off. Uh, proposed. It, it a- does. I'm just, I'm imagining the plaid tied around the hip and the long hair. Oh yeah. And- oh yeah. 
Uh, a wealthy colored man, Major F.E. Dumas, Dumas received 43 votes and Warmoth 45. Dumas refused, refused the position of lieutenant governor and Dunn was nominated. Five white men and two colored men constituted the ticket. The other colored man being Antoine Dubleset. Dubleset. We remember him from a couple episodes ago. Uh, for treasurer. Yeah. Uh, we don't remember how to say his name, but we do remember him. This ticket was <laughs> elected. The new legislature met June 29th, 1868, and the temporary speaker was a Negro, R.H. Isbell. He and Dunn tried to enforce the test oath, as they were legally bound to do, to the great anger of the rebels, who asked if they were to be excluded by a hard N-word uh, from the seats to which they were elected. The legislature spent some time discussing a civil rights bill. This bill went over until the next session and caused high feeling and long discussion. The conservatives protested against the colored people forcing themselves in where they were not wanted. Pinchback insisted only on equal accommodation. I consider myself just as far above coming into company that does not want me as they are above coming into an elevation with them. I do not believe that any sensible colored man upon this floor would wish to be in a private part of a public place without the consent of the owners of it. That's weird. It is false. It is the wholesale falsehood to say that we wish to force ourselves upon white people. The bill passed both houses, but the governor was almost afraid to sign it, and the newspapers tried to frighten Negroes. Will any Negro or gang of Negroes attempt to exercise the privilege it confers, belligerently asked the commercial bulletin? If they do, it will be at their own peril. He may be able to obtain a ticket of admission, but no New Orleans audience will ever permit him to take his seat except in the places allotted for colored persons. It continued. Apparently, this state of calm does not suit the radical leaders. Their continual control over the state must depend on the jealousy of the black toward the white people. They feel that the colored race have more confidence in the old citizens of Louisiana than in any newcomers. Hence the effort to revive a strife which would readily quiet itself without much stimulus. Warmoth, in his inaugural address, ventured to urge immediate measures for the regression, repression sorry, of lawlessness and disorder now rife in many parts of the state. From many parishes, we have most, almost daily accounts of violence and outrage, in many cases most brutal and revolting murders, without any effort on the part of the people to prevent or punish them. In a special address... And that, oh, yeah, that sounds in line with what we were reading last time, with uh, what we discussed with some of the accounts of the, the lynch mobs and, and yeah, things the, like and that. Yeah, the, um, you know, the police actively uh, you know, yeah, massacring yeah. a population. Yeah, I mean, this is deeply... Uh, woven into the fabric of this country is, you know, deep, violent, violent racism. And, and as much as you will hear it individualized, um, let's, you know, make no mistake, of course, racism is not only systemic, but incredibly violent. And it's not just what you see exposed with police brutality. It's far deeper than that. In a special address to the colored people, Warmoth said, My friends... This is a great day for the colored men of Louisiana. It is full of good for you if my hopes and expectations in your favor are well-founded. If you are honest, industrious, and peaceable, you will have millions of friends who will stand by you, and you will see that you are protected in all political rights with them, which they themselves enjoy. You do not wish to intrude yourselves socially upon those who do not want your society any more than you would want other people to obtrude themselves upon you without your consent. That is so weird. You don't want to be around white people. Let's all be honest. Come on. The contest from which we are emerging has not been for the social equality, but for civil and political equality. 
this last you know this last you now have and it will be my duty to see that you are protected in it and if i am not mistaken in my opinion of your race it will be cheerfully accorded to you very soon by everybody and remember that the roads that lead to prosperity for every man whether white or black are those of virtue and education of honesty and sobriety of industry and obedience to law Unfortunately, the state government inaugurated in July was almost immediately confronted by a presidential election in November 1868. Skillfully and with calculation, the economic problem of recon- problems of Reconstruction were being changed by planters and capitalists to look like problems of politics and social recognition. Oh, we're getting to recognition politics. I see. Good work. Yeah. Good voice. Uh, beneath this deliberate camouflage, the industrial plans of the Tribune were being slowly submerged until finally murder and mob law seized the state. The whole South was in a blaze of excitement in the 1868 election. Tremendous and frequent meetings were held in every city and parish in Louisiana. Every Confederate sympathizer was encouraged and had hopes of what would happen to the South as a result of the election. The Republican Party in Louisiana was paralyzed. Secret semi-military organizations were set up and riots broke up. Republican meetings. Clubhouses, club rooms were raided and destroyed. Destroyed? Destroyed? Holy cow, it is your turn to read. It was believed (laughs) that if Seymour and Blair were elected, Reconstruction would be overthrown. Yeah, so of course, you know, we're in a huge state of very violent and terrifying tension. And Du Bois, being the very smart, I mean, the Harvard man, Harvard uh, man. materialist that he is, Harvard man, uh, the materialist that he is, you know, sees things in a, in a sense very similar to what we've uh, read from Fanon and what we'll be discussing when we get to uh, Dr. Colthard um, in, you know, Redskins, White Masks and in Wretched of the Earth is this recognition stuff. It's, it's, it's not that representation is anything but a good thing or unimportant. It's that when it's emptied and, and the economics are taken out of it and it's brought down to to just um, recognition, you know, that's just an excuse for the power not to transfer. That's just a way to hold on to it. And it's an empty gesture uh, by the power hungry. Yep. A civil war of secret assassination and open intimidation and murder began and did not end until 1876 and not entirely then. Strong as the hatred of the reactionaries was towards Negroes, it was stronger towards carpetbaggers. That's That's interesting. interesting. Yeah. Uh, The Democratic State Central Committee sent out a letter, and we would earnestly declare to our fellow citizens our opinion that even the most implacable and ill-disposed of the Negro population, those who show the worst spirit toward the white people, are not half as much deserving of... Our aversion as non-intercourse with them as the debased whites who encourage and aid them and who were welcome who become through their votes the office holding oppressors of the people whatever resentment you have should be felt toward the latter and not against the colored men but in no case should you permit this resentment to go further than to withdraw from them all countenance association and patronage and thwart every effort they make to maintain a business and social foothold among you so there's an interesting dynamic and i know i just i barely read a paragraph today so far and i'm already trying to tap no, in no. uh but but there's a ripe vein here um because this is something that you still see today from reactionaries mm-hmm. okay they take they take the nature of 
you know, abuse of power relations, right, of these recognition politics, and they deploy them cynically because they don't actually care, okay? But it makes a narrative of this outside agitator. And by taking this outside agitator, someone's come in here and they've destroyed our livelihood with their big backwards ideas. And we've got to stop their big backwards ideas. And the people that are fighting for these big backwards ideas aren't fighting for humanity, aren't fighting in the interest of people who want these things. They're just cynically playing politics. You know, Black Lives Matter is just people cynically playing politics. It's not black people fighting for their very lives against police brutality. Police brutality is just just people playing politics for opportunity. And it's just these outside agitators. And whether it's something as extreme and paranoid as, you know, they're all George Soros funded or, or whatever, um, to like, this is a problem in democratic cities and, and you know, and Democrats are turned to to use it for power and, and whatever, whatever kind of paranoid nonsense this is, it's always these outside agitators and you always excuse away the material reality that puts the masses behind these, right? Because it's always just playing politics. It's never a real problem that's really supported or really needed. It's just playing politics. And that's kind of really encompassed in this hatred for carpetbaggers. So you and me immediately were like, oh, that's interesting. Why would they hate the carpetbaggers more than the black people? Their primary hate is is black people. That's very obvious. Well, it's because of these narratives. Right. Well, it's also it feels like it, it it blends into this paternalism narrative that they've tried to use forever, especially with black people, mm-hmm. where it's Oh, we don't. You don't hate the black man. No, no, no. Hate this uppity white man that's trying to teach them that they can live above their station and abuse them. To, to oh, oh, you should be far yeah, more upset sneaky, with this sneaky person. way to to rob agency right away from them and and totally dehumanize them. Mm-hmm. Right? Is you know they have these interests, but they're not really their interests. They're just pawns. They're, so, yeah, they're just because pawns they're not in our pawns. Right. So because they're not our pawns, they're being used by the wrong people the wrong way. And it's not it's not for their own good. Yeah. They, you you, you know? can't blame them. But these white people should know better. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's very it's a very disgusting kind of narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but not, you know, not above the Democrats of the 1870s. Yeah. Yeah. Not above white supremacists at any time in this country, because that's what they do. Uh, secret democratic organizations were formed and all well armed. The Knights of the White Camellia. Camellia? Camellia? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, that i seen Knights of White. It's a racist group. We're, we're there. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan and an Italian organization called the Innocents. Uh oh. They all, they all paraded nightly. In the election, Seymour and Blair received 88,225 votes, while Glenn. Grant, Grant and Colfax received 34,859. Out of 21,000 Republican voters in New Orleans, only 276 Republican votes were cast. There were in 1870 726,915 persons in the state. A map of the state showing where violence and intimidation occurred leaves less than a third of the state in peace. Because of the experiences in the presidential election of 1868, the legislature was asked to change the election and registration laws and approve the law of March 16, 1870, conferring great power upon the governor. The governor was authorized to appoint a chief of election officer who should make a registration of voters in each parish and a board before which the governor should lay all the election returns. 
This returning board was composed of three state officers and two state senators, and it could throw out fraudulent votes or returns secured by violence. This device made the government by the mob impossible, but it substituted a possible dictatorship in the hands of an unscrupulous governor. So, governor kind of opportunistically, you know, he was taking these incredibly strong violent purges by white supremacists to intimidate black votes and used it cynically for his own ends. And that, again, right down to the fabric of this country makes too much sense. um, None of this is surprising. Just just depressing. Uh, Governor Warmoth's attitude towards the finances of the state was characteristic and original. There was need of money and he raised it. His statement of the needs was unexceptional. I found the state and the city of New Orleans bankrupt. Interest on the state and city bonds had been in default for years. The assessed property taxable in the state had fallen in value from four hundred and seventy million hundred and sixty four thousand in eighteen sixty to two hundred and fifty thousand two hundred fifty million. Oh, I'm sorry, two hundred fifty million in 63,000 in 1870. Taxes for the years 1860, 61, 62, 63 through 67 were in arrears. The city and state were flooded with with state and city shin shin plasters? Yeah, like I'm a on loan it. Term? I'm on it. Okay. All right. Which had been issued to meet current expenses. Among the first acts of the new legislature was one was one to postpone the collection of all black of all back taxes. And later, they were postponed indefinitely. The public Shin roads were mud trails. are paper money of a low denomination, typically less than a dollar. They circulated when there was a shortage oh. of circulating coinage. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, there was not a hard-surfaced road in the whole state. There was the one canal and very limited telegraphic facilities. The mails were usually carried on horseback. New Orleans had but four paved streets. The amount of the state and city debt was unknown. The state securities were selling from 22 cents to 25 cents on the dollar. There was no money in either state or city treasury. New Orleans was a dirty, impoverished, and hopeless city with a mixed, ignorant, corrupt, and bloodthirsty gang in control. It was flooded with lotteries, gambling dens, and licensed brothels. Many of the city officials, as well as the police force, were thugs and murderers. Yeah, something's never was changed. Rampant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, violence was rampant, and hardly a day passed that someone was not shot out under the oaks in defense of his honor. There was a demand by businessmen for more railroads. The legislature granted charters and voted aid for construction. In the past, every railroad in the state had been built in this way. Ten years later, the Democratic legislature of 1878 granted $2 million in bonds to aid in the building of a road to Shreveport, and the bill was signed by Governor Nichols. A great deal of state indebtedness was represented by this attempt to promote railroad building, and in this attempt, both parties were responsible for making the appropriations. The bill aiding the New Orleans, Mobile, and Texas railroads passed unanimously in the Senate, composed of 21 Republicans and 9 Democrats, and in the House were 50 Republicans and 9 Democrats who voted for it, and and only three members voted against it. 
and the bill incorporating the New Orleans, Baton Rouge, and Vicksburg line, where the state assumed a liability of $6 million, the introducer was a Democrat, and it passed unanimously in both houses. The same thing was approximately true in five other cases, where the state assumed large financial responsibility. So, big railroad expansion, not out of character for this time. No, no, huge. Uh, the money which Wormuth raised did not go wholly or even perhaps mostly for public objects. He allowed all elements to feed at the public trough. Public debt and taxes mounted. Wormuth, his friends, and many of his enemies began to get rich in the midst of the surrounding poverty. When he, approached, when he was approached about this and bitter complaint made at mounting costs of government, he had a suave and effective series of answers. First, he said that a great many of the members of the legislature were ignorant Negroes and easily influenced by lobbyists and the men of the community ought to assist him in restraining them. Oh, good. Yeah. Then he turned around and reminded property holders and capitalists that many of the bills which the legislator was charged with passing corruptly were for the aggrandizement of individuals and corporations representing their very best people. Their bank presidents and the best people of New Orleans were, he said, crowding the lobbies of the legislature and continually whispering into these men's ears. Bribes. How was the state to defend, he asked, against the interposition of these people who were potent in their influence in the community? It is apparent that Governor Wormuth understood the term best people to be synonymous with the term richest people. He instanced the case of five million bond, of the five million bond bill to take up the city notes, which he had vetoed, which had been passed in the House over his veto. The bill went to the Senate. I walked into the Senate chamber and saw nearly every prominent broker of the city engaged in lobbying that bill through the Senate, and it was only by exposing the fact that one of their emissaries had come into this very chamber and laid upon the desk of my secretary in order for $50,000 that I was able to defeat it. Mr. Conway, the mayor of your city, came and offered me any consideration to induce me to sign the bill. He also said that another senator of New Orleans had offered him a bribe of $50,000 and a share of the profits for his signature to the Nicholson, Nicholson, yeah, pavement bill. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting position by Governor Warmoth because he's definitely looking at black people in a very racist way and saying, you know, I mean, these disorganized black people are screwing everything up. But then he's turning around at the big capitalists and planters and the actual corrupt people who are sloshing money around. And he's calling them out on their bullshit. So basically, he's looking in all directions and just going, you're all assholes. I'm kind of wondering how this man succeeded in politics. Mm. Charm. Suave. A, if you look at him, if you look at a picture of him, just a preposterously large mustache. Um, oh well, there you go. I, I don't know that's if a I good need to, David. David, we're gonna, we're gonna take a second here, and I, I am I am going to to show you this mustache. It's very important to me. Um, bu, 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 bu. Go to Discord. Go to Discord and look at this man's mustache. That look at it. That a mustache. That is, that is there is some nonsense going on behind that stash. That is a Nietzsche is, level stash, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, uh, it is. It yeah. is preposterous. Middle part and that kind of a mustache shouldn't be seen together. Um, so again, I'm assuming that that level of power was just unseen at the time. Um, it was not only the fact that unsuccessful jobbers had tried to bribe him, but that successful jobbers and prominent Southern men without reasonable doubt had bribed him and knew it, and their mouths were closely shut when it came to details and special instances of stealing. 
Without a doubt, many of the colored leaders shared in this graft, but from the very nature of the case, it was not a large share. Many members of this legis- of the legislature, white and black, were regularly paid small sums, but on the other hand, leaders like Dunn and Roundez were incorruptible and lashed the thieves on all sides. Thomas G. Davidson of Livingston Parish, who had been a Democrat in the state since 1826, said that there was corruption in the legislature. No one doubts, but it is not confined to the Republicans alone, which is, again, the trend we've kept seeing that it's over and over. Mm -hmm. It's not just it's yes, there was corruption there. It wasn't all the black people. It was the four white guys, and it was also everyone on the other side of the aisle and, and everywhere. So it's that seems to be the trend that Du Bois is hammering home here. Um, it was a colored man, W.F. Brown, who, as state superintendent of education, called attention in his report of 1873 to the way in which school funds were being stolen. New Orleans, was a leg- as a legacy from banks and the Freedmen's Bureau, was one of the few southern states that had a system of public schools. In 1865, there were 141 schools for the freedmen and, hun- and 19,000 pupils. A school law had been passed in 1869 providing a system of public education without distinction of race or color. This system was not being carried out, W.F. Brown reported. Stolen in Carroll Parish in 1871, $30,000. In East Baton Rouge, $5,000. In St. Landry, $5,000. In St. Martin, $3,000. In Plaque Mines, $5,000. Besides large amounts in St. Tammany, Concordia, Morehouse, and other parishes. The entire permanent school funds of many parishes disappeared during this period. Many colored voters tried to swing their vote so to stop the corruption, save the schools, and improve their economic condition. But if this was difficult in South Carolina and Mississippi, it was almost impossible in Louisiana because there was so little choice between the parties aspiring to power. Under these circumstances, it was exceedingly difficult for colored voters to know what to do. There was no question but if the Negroes had been offered a chance to make their leadership effective in alliance with some party of social uplift, they would have followed it in large and increasing numbers. They would have become an honest and teachable electorate and rapidly expelled most of their venal, careless, and dishonest fellows. But what could one choose between men like Warmoth, McKenney, and Carter, a carpetbagger, a planter, and a scalawag? walk into a bar and uh, then a bugatier, a slave driver and a plain thief join them and then why are all these names so good like why are all the descriptions so good it just never stops being fun for me um, the expenses of the Warmoth government increased to a total of 26 million dollars I have to assume a million of that was in mustache wax um, in four years and five months the state debt was 10 million in 1863 in 1860, it was $26 million in 1865. Subtracting the Confederate debt, there was a total debt of $17 million in 1868. This, in 1872, had increased to $29 million. Besides, the bonds voted but not yet issued would increase the real and contingent debt to $41 million. The tax rate in 1864 was 3.75 mills. In 1869, 5.25 mills. We've discussed that's just uh, percent, essentially, is what the mills refer yeah. to. If, you, if, you're, if you're a sociopath who listens to these in reverse order, where you listen to the newest one first and then go backwards, Spencer, I, I see you out there, and what is wrong with you? Um, that, that, is a, that is an unhinged way to listen to this podcast. Uh, in 1871, it was 14.5 mills, and in 1872, 21.5 mills. This expense was based on property values of $435 million in 1860, which, with emancipated slaves, sank to $200 million in 1865 and rose to $251 million in 1870. 
Lots of numbers driving me crazy. Mm-hmm. George W. Carter, the typical Louisiana scalawag, was a discovery of Warmoth, who maneuvered him into the legislature. He came to New Orleans soon after Warmoth was inaugurated. He was a Virginian, but had lived in Texas. He was an apostatized preacher and an ex-Confederate colonel who later turned loyal patriot and anti-Warmoth leader. Carter was a man of education and polish, a good speaker, but an absolutely unscrupulous grafter. But yeah, politician, dude. Come on, we got you. Um, yeah, that's it's good to say. That sounds right. You described right. him. He was made Speaker of the House of Representatives in 1871 and became head of a ring proposing to control legislation that offered a chance for blackmail. The history of Louisiana from 1870 to 1876 reads like a Chinese puzzle to those who forget the great forces below. Beneath the witch's cauldron of political chicanery, it is difficult to remember the great dumb mass of white and black labor. The overwhelming majority of the citizens of Louisiana groping for light and seldom finding expression. Historians quite unanimously forget and ignore them and chronicle only the amazing game of politicians. Which is, again, you got to remember when Du Bois is writing this, he is calling out the great man theory hard. Hard. Here. And it's fantastic because everything Du Bois does is fantastic. Pretty well. Um, under the election laws of 1869, Warmoth secured control of Louisiana of louisiana elections the governor through the returning board which he appointed could at his discretion throw out any votes anywhere in the state on any pretext just kind of like bosses employing you uh it was to no purpose so far as the results were concerned that voters were intimidated mobbed and killed consequently the election of 1870 was unusually quiet then trouble began to brew. The colored men who formed the bulk of Warmoth's following were not willing to simply be his dumb followers. Led by Lieutenant Governor Dunn, they began a revolt in the Republican Convention of August 1870. The convention elected Dunn chairman, passed over Warmoth, and especially opposed a constitutional amendment which would make the governor eligible for re-election. Warmoth took the stump adroitly. Yeah, adroitly. Okay, adroitly flattered the white planters and eventually carried his amendment. Oh, that's nice. Uh, <laughs> when the new legislature met in, 18, in January 1871, he faced a new dilemma. Several hundred colored men joined in a large meeting at the Louisiana Hotel to protest against his despotism. All the best elements of the state were arrayed against him one wing of his own party and at least a part of the Negro population. In addition, economic conditions were crying for reform. The colored men nominated Pinchback for the term in the United States Senate after the term Harris had expired March 4, 1871. At the same time, a brother-in-law of President Grant, controller of customs at New Orleans, also wanted to be senator, and the president wanted him. Warmoth allowed a white planter to be elected. The result was that the Republican convention split in August 1871, with Dunn at the head of one faction and Warmoth at the head of another. While Warmoth was temporarily out of state, Lieutenant Governor Dunn discharged the duties of governor. Although Warmoth resented it, some of the Democratic papers said that they preferred a slur Mm. governor to a carpetbagger a state convention was called and dunn wrote to the leading colored republicans i write to you to ask if you your support and influence in behalf of the colored people we have a great work before us and in order to be successful we need the aid and cooperation of every colored man in the state 
An effort is being made to sell us out to the Democrats by the governor, and we must nip it in the bud. I ask you to use your influence to elect good, honest men that will look out for the interest of the colored man and not be duped by the money or the promises of Governor Warmoth. And above all, do not elect as a delegate any of his office holders, who being under obligations to him for position, will be compelled to support his policy. Warmoth retaliated by joining with the Democrats and depriving Lieutenant Governor Dunn of his right to appoint committees in the Senate. So this was getting very ugly. Yeah, this was this was breaking down um, rather quickly. Yes. Um, Dunn wrote Horace Greeley in 1871 after Greeley's visit in the South and his... Str- Strictures on carpetbaggers. There are 90,000 voters in the state, 84,000 of whom are colored. In my judgment, a fair and untrammeled vote being cast, 19 twentieths of the Republican Party in the state, including majority of the elective state officers and all of the federal officers, with few exceptions, are opposed to the administration of the present state executive. We want for ourselves and for the people of all parties better laws on the statute books and better men to administer the same. And we are persuaded that neither of these wants will ever be met as long as the present executive exercises any material control of the politics of Louisiana. We are engaged in no strife of factions, but the people gravely and earnestly are fighting for their personal and political rights against the encroachments of impudent and unfaithful public servants." Would you be greatly surprised, Mr. Greeley, to be informed that in the judgment of the good people of this state, irrespective of party, the young man who now occupies the executive chair of Louisiana, whose crimes against his party and his people you charitably ignore, and whose championship you so boldly assume, is preeminently the prototype of and prince of the tribe of carpetbaggers who seem to be your pet aversion? So, this is nothing new. Well... It's back then, so I guess maybe it was new in American history, but this is nothing that has stopped in American history. Not only did we see this kind of right there at the same time on a federal level, right, with Johnson, and basically he did everything he did to throw black people under the bus to, you know, deadly, deadly repercussions. Um, But also, you know, we're seeing this tragedy play out in Louisiana uh, with Warmoth and Dunn. And Dunn's even talking about it. He's like, we're not trying to factualize factionize we're not trying to break off and be like you know my side versus your side we're just trying to not have the party led astray by this opportunist who's basically doing right-wing things and of course you know i mean this is something you still see today right not that the bourgeoisie party of the democrats would ever ever actually do anything left you know i mean it's a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie they're going to do what capitalists want but we're all aware that there's more left Democrats and that there's more centrist Democrats. And there's some splits there. And in those factions, it's constantly the centrist Democrats who are dragging things right for the whole party and siding with Republicans opportunistically and then expecting total like party fealty, right? Yeah. Like, you voted for us, we're your only hope. And you kind of see this with, with Warmoth, too. You know, I mean, you just, you you have the centrist view. You really want these right-wing things, but you expect the support of, of the left side of the party. Yep. Just at this point, November 21st, 1871, Oscar Dunn died. And the Louisiana Negroes lost an unselfish, incorruptible leader. 
This was Warman's chance, and he secured Pinchback support, and at the same time avoided the contingency of having Carter, the scalawag, become governor by securing Pinchback's election as lieutenant governor. This aroused another factional fight in the Republican Party for office and patronage. With the planters ready to take advantage of every opportunity and the Negroes deprived of their leaders, Warmoth rode this storm until his following failed. When he adroitly leaped to the liberal Republican revolt of the North, headed by Horace Greeley. When Chamberlain of South Carolina joined Northern the Northern Reform Wave, he backed his move by excellent reform efforts. Despite this, his dangerous and un- ultimately fatal alliance with the disloyal planters, Warmoth had no program for reform. On the other hand, Scalawags like Carter joined the anti-Warmoth Republican faction and urged them to armed revolt. In came the United States troops, and down came a Congressional Investigation Committee and scored Warmoth. The result was that in the campaign of 1872, Warmoth took 125 delegates, one-fifth of whom were colored, to the Cincinnati Convention. This was the largest delegation that any state sent. This again was a shrewd move, because the liberal Republicans were attacking graft and theft both north and south. When this arch-grafter ranged himself on their side, Pinchback, under the advice of Sumner, was disposed to follow Warmoth into the liberal Republican Party, but he was alienated when he saw that Warmoth, instead of leading a real third-party movement, was about to surrender to the planters. A curious campaign ensued. The reactionary Democrats nominated John McHenry from one of the worst anti-Negro parishes of the state, where Negroes and white Republicans had been murdered by the dozens. No self-respecting colored man or liberal of any stamp could vote for him. On the other hand, there was a reform party, led by Beauregard, which displayed at its convention a placard, Justice to All Races, Creeds, and Political Opinions. J. Sella Martin, the colored labor leader from the North, addressed this convention and also Warmoth, who was working to have this movement and the Democrats unite with the liberal Republicans. The liberal Republicans nominated Penn for governor and a colored man, Dumas, for secretary of state while the regular Republicans nominated Kellogg and a colored man, Antoine. Warmoth tried to get reactionary Democrats and the liberal Republicans to unite with McHenry and Penn as nominees, a colored man, Armistead, as Secretary of State, and Pinchback as Congressman at large. Such a ticket, Warmoth was sure would, with his power over the returning board, win, as he said, by 30,000 majority. But the reactionary planters refused the coalition, and Warmoth capped the climax by surrendering to them completely and backing McHenry. There was nothing for Pinchback to do but join the Grant Republicans. He said, it is well known as far as I'm concerned that I have no partiality for the governor of the state. I have not stood at his back as one of the supporters or admirers of the distinguished gentleman. I am not a lover or a worshiper of his. If I thought we could secure Republican government in Louisiana by supporting Mr. Greeley, I would support him. But after a careful observation, I tell you, fellow citizens, if you wish a Republican government and the success of the Republican Party, you can only secure that under Grant and Wilson ticket. Everyone knows how bitter I am against the Custom House and its party. But I tell you, my friends, if it is necessary to secure such success of the Republican Party, I will swallow it. 
All hey, parties to great. There's a good party man right there. No, you okay. stop. You're done for the week. We're done. All right. <laughs> um, I was wondering. We were really getting into the Grant stuff. Yeah, I was about to say we're we're getting ready to dig in on on Grant. There's more more quotes to come next week. But for this week, that is going to be everything from uh, your your good friends here at Mark's Madness. Uh, that being said, we are Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. And there are a number of ways that you can get a hold of us if you feel that we are reading the books incorrectly or something to that effect. Um, one of the ways you can do that is to reach out to us on uh, email. Uh, our email address is marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Another way you can reach out to us is on Twitter. Our Twitter account is at marksmadnesspod. Uh, and last but not least, if you wanted to join a community of people that also listen to this podcast or don't, but are, are of the same mindset, uh, you are more than welcome to join the Mark's Madness Discord. Uh, that is linked in our Twitter bio, or we will email you the link if you do not have Twitter. Um, that being said, we did our disclaimer last week. David, do you have any closing remarks? Um, yeah, one thing I forgot to mention uh, at the beginning, um, since we were talking about indigeneity um because of you know missing and murdered indigenous women uh girls in two-spirit um was you know indigeneity is is not specific just to this continent it's anywhere someone has been colonized that belongs to that land and along with the violent uprisings in colombia there has been some violence out in israel and so it is something to remember as this stuff pops up that you know, the, the empire sees that it's in trouble, right? It sees that it's economically being passed by China. It sees that it can't take sanctions. Um, it sees that it's crumbling internally. From, or, I'm sorry, can't take sanctions through to people when China and Russia can use different currencies and get around it, um, as is you know about to be the case, if that's not already beginning to be the case. Um, it sees that it's crumbling from internal contradictions inside. Uh, that does not mean it's instantly going to come to a halt or that it's processed through isn't going to be the violent blows of fascism, which is exactly why we need to be patient with ourselves, but fight as quickly and sternly and, and, and well as we can, as long as we're not rushing ourselves and we're organized, um, to get out there and organize and to resist and to, to prevent faction fascism and the death that comes with it. Uh, but one thing the, the empire is going to do then is it's going to redouble its efforts in the avenues it sees possible for imperialism. And so it is going to continue to export violence, especially to its biggest two outposts in Israel and Colombia. And then it is going to see violence reverberated back. Um, obviously, you'll notice some things when the, the unfortunate videos come out of, of Palestinians getting attacked that... Uh, you know, for every bit, the U.S. totally weaponizes the IDF and the U.S. military trains the IDF. The IDF then turns around and trains U.S. police with the training they got from the U.S. military so that without direct training from the U.S. military, through that avenue, the U.S. military is really training the police in, in violent methodology that is used on U.S. citizens. Um, so, you know, we need to be steadfast in our opposition to empire. Yeah, 100%. Uh, amen, and that is as good a way to end it as any. Uh, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name is David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.